This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello there. Welcome back to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher, Jeremy Myers. Listen, now I'm going to give you a little introduction to uh, a way of reading various texts out of the New Testament, especially letters of Paul, that is going to be extremely helpful for you. Uh, a lot of the, th- the words and ideas that we sometimes read in Paul and in the book of James, we'll be looking at an example out of James chapter 2, the famous faith versus works passage. Uh, a lot of these uh, things that we think are the words of Paul or the words of James are actually the words and ideas that the author is refuting. And I'm going to give you some clues and tips and insights on how to know the difference and how to tell uh, what's going on there. Okay, it's going to be extremely helpful for you. The podcast might be a little longer than normal, but I think that you will enjoy it and uh, will your, your Bible study. You'll, you'll be able to read your Bible with a lot more clarity going forward as well. And uh, hey, I, I would like to invite you, if you enjoy this podcast... You know, it's quite time-consuming and also quite expensive to put this out. And so if you have benefited from it, I have a new way that you can help me cover the costs and also show your appreciation for this podcast and the truths and ideas that uh, you learn from it. And that is by sending a donation by text. If you're on your phone uh, or, you know, tablet or something that has access to the internet, or, or you can text on it, but especially on your phone if you're driving around, traveling, walking your dog, commuting to work, whatever. Uh, don't do this if you're driving, by the way. Don't text and drive. <laughs> uh, wait till later. But listen, uh, you can send in a donation by text to show your appreciation to help cover the cost. I will greatly appreciate it. Uh, the, the, the podcast goes out to thousands of people every single week, and uh, this helps that continue to happen. Anyway, here's all you have to do. You can send a text to all the donations. They go through PayPal. But you can send a text to PayPal, uh, P-A-Y-P-A-L, 729-725, okay? So all you do is text that. And then in the text, the first thing you do is put the amount you want to donate. So if it's $10, just put a 10, one zero. If it's $100, I would thank you very much. It would be one zero zero. And hey, if it's $2, just put a two, whatever. I would be greatly appreciated for it. And then the next thing you do, okay, after the amount, here's how you tell PayPal where to send it. Just put my email address, donate at redeeminggod.com, okay? So, again, text to PayPal, 729-725, put the amount, say one zero for 10, and then my email address, donate at redeeminggod.com, R-E-D-E-E-M-I-N-G-G-O-D.com. That's all it works. I think PayPal will send you back a confirmation saying, do you want to send $10 to donate at redeeminggod.com? And you just click yes, and it takes care of everything else for you, okay? So thank you very much if you choose to support me in that way. Okay, so um, you might not know this, but uh, maybe you do. I attended the uh, Renew conference in September, uh, last last September, with uh, Greg Boyd, and it was about his new book, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, and also his book, Cross Vision. Uh, in which he attempts to uh, explain some of the violent passages in the Bible in light of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as part of that conference, he invited me up on the stage uh, with him 
uh, to dialogue with him about some of the content of that book. Uh, and the reason for that is because, well, <laughs> actually, it's because I reviewed his book on Amazon, although he introduced me at the conference as being part of this Facebook group, which was really sort of antagonistic uh, towards him and some of the ideas. Now, I am part of that group, but I think I had only interacted uh, in that group about two or three times, and so I really had nothing whatsoever to do with the book. Uh, and besides that, my posts there were not antagonistic at all. Uh, I think they were pretty generous and kind and gracious uh, and supportive of Greg. Anyway, uh, the point is that Greg and I have, although we are in agreement like 95% of the way on how to understand the violence of God in the Old Testament and, and, and then places in the New, such as uh, with the book of Revelation and so on, our, our ultimate conclusion at the end of it is uh, we, we view things uh, somewhat differently, okay? So uh, very early on, he had invited me to come out to the conference to participate in a panel discussion with him and some other authors uh, about the content of his book and our areas of disagreement or agreement, as the case may be, on his book. Uh, but I was the only one who said yes. <laughs> um, uh, and so I, I went to the conference, but they did not end up having the panel discussion. However, on the last day of the conference, he did invite me up onto the stage with him, and we had a little dialogue, a little back and forth, where we sort of presented our ideas, and I got to ask a couple questions. I was up there for about 10 minutes, and just for the sake of you hearing uh, what we discussed, let me include a recording from his podcast, which he puts out, of our discussion. Okay, here it is. This is from the Renew Conference 2017 and my discussion with Greg Boyd. Jeremy, come on up here. Okay, um, yeah, we're going to get some more of you. We're going to have some... Uh, there is a Facebook group. How many of you are in the Crucifixion oh, of the Warrior God Facebook to... group? There's a Facebook group. It's like 500 people in there and it's some of the most robust criticism of robust. the book <laughs> has come right in that group. It's been really... I was on for a couple of weeks and I decided it wasn't worth it. It's really something. So I, I, asked a couple, Nasty. I asked a couple of guys who are very active in that to actually honor their commitment to the book. And they've been, a lot of people have been blogging about the book and in this Facebook group. It's open to anybody who wants to join. And so Jeremy's one of them. And so we're, you, I'm going to actually abdicate my mic and let... These two guys have a, you know, a conversation for five minutes about some of the questions that have come up there. <laughs> Wrestling match. Tag team, huh? Do I get to call someone else in? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, so, um, boy, where do I begin? Where do I begin? So, uh, all right, I don't know if Greg knows this. Some of you maybe do. I work in a prison. All right, so a lot of these people... I'm glad they let you all to come to the conference. Yes, <laughs> that's right. They did, they did. Uh, they're... Guards will be showing up soon. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. No, um, and a lot of these guys in prison, uh, because of their circumstances, feel abandoned by God. Sure. Uh, and everybody else in their life. Mm -hmm. Wives, children, parents, friends, everybody mm -hmm. have forsaken and abandoned them. And so my concern working in that atmosphere is if I were to go to them and give them your second principle of your cruciform hermeneutic, this redemptive withdrawal, mm -hmm. what they're going to hear me say is, oh, everybody else has abandoned me, so has God. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just feel really concerned that I don't want to give them that impression at right, all. Right, right, sure. Uh, so it's sort of a pastoral concern, and I know you're very pastoral, have a, have a heart as right, well. So right, I'm just right. wondering if there's different terminology I can use or some way to explain that even though they're here in prison, even though everybody else has abandoned them, withdrawn from them, forsaken them, 
God has not and God never, ever will. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think the major issue that Jeremy is, you know, the gospel always has to be contextualized. And so you've got to know your people and the categories they think in and the vocabulary they work with. And, um, uh, and so this is a matter of adjusting a concept so you're not unnecessarily triggering them. Um, I'm not sure what the particular words you should use, but um, the, the major thing I'd say in response to that is, A, that I, I, I'm, I'm just talking about revealed judgments that are in the Bible. Yep. Uh, it's not a theodicy. Uh, and it, it, you can't generalize this uh, to interpret anyone else's experience. But secondly, and probably more importantly, is that the whole reason why Jesus experienced abandonment, God forsakenness, is so that we never have to. He stood in our place and, and uh, um, bore the consequences of our, our sin so that, that now we are freed uh, to be reconciled to him. And so what they need to hear is that, that uh, you know, far from worrying about God abandoning them, uh, they, they need to know that, no, God stood in their place and experienced abandonment for them. And uh, he tells us he'll never leave us or forsake us. Now, th th there still are consequences for our actions, as these folks would know as well as anybody, because they're in prison. Right. But uh, um, that's never about God's love. You know, if, if, to use the analogy I used yesterday, uh, if, if you smoke for 40 years and right. get lung cancer, uh, God still loves you profoundly, and, and is, his love's never going to abandon you, but you are going to have those consequences. We still are in a world where we, we, we experience the natural, in, uh, and that's not about God getting even or anything. That's just about the world running according to laws, but that's nothing to do with God's love. So would you say that since Jesus, you would say Jesus was abandoned by God well, yes on the and cross? No. Yes, yes and no. Okay. He, he, he was delivered over. Right. And so in that sense, uh, he, he, he was abandoned. Uh, the Father didn't protect him. And he experienced God forsakenness on the cross as he was on the inside of our, our, our uh, curse. Uh, but all that was according to God's plan, and so it wasn't an abandonment. Yeah. Uh, it was a, a planned So thing. nobody today since the cross, God would never, ever withdraw from anybody since Well, I, I can't say that. Um, um, it, it, it may be that there's times where, where just like we have to sometimes let people go uh, to experience the consequences of their sin, uh, God may do that. I, I, can't, yeah. I can't say that he doesn't, but that's nothing to do with his love. In fact, it's done out of love. Um, and, uh, but what I wouldn't do is now think that I'm in a position where I can now interpret people's experience for that uh, because the one thing I do know is that people have free will and our actions have impact on others, and that usually is adequate to explain things. And as I interpret Jesus in Luke 13, we're not allowed to pretend like we know more than that. Right. Yeah, I guess I just, and that's, that's the concern. I mean, it would be one thing for me to say this happened to Jesus. It can never happen to anybody else. He was, you know, this is where you get into the whole substitutionary atonement thing. He was our substitute in that sense. And I know mm. you don't believe that, and I'm not saying you do. Uh, but if I were to say that, you know, if I were to get up and preach to somebody and say, you know, I can't say it's happening to you, but it's possible it might happen. I guarantee you everyone in the audience is going to think, oh, it did happen to me. I mm. have been abandoned. God has withdrawn from me. Um, he hates me because of what I've yeah, see, done. That, that, and so that, now that's I have a whole to, different sermon to preach. See, so I got to overcome there, you that. You equated withdrawal as, as hatred. Uh, and and I, they I'm did, saying, yeah. Yeah, so did. that's the point that needs to always be emphasized. I mean, Jeremy, at the very least, look at if, if, if you get drunk and go out driving, uh, there's a, God let you do that, right? right? right. Uh, just in terms of giving you free will. And, and, and he's, he's not going to lobotomize you so you don't do that. And so just in that sense, he's sort of like, well, I, I'll let you. But that has nothing to do with his love. Right. 
So I guess what I would say, and this is what I've argued online, um, yes, God loves us. And I would, I would teach this to the guys I work with. God loves you unconditionally, forever right. and ever, right. uh, without end. And yes, there's free will. I 100% agree with that. But then what I would say is because of free will, we do make our own choices. Right, right. All right, smoke, cancer, get drunk, mm -hmm. drive, whatever. Um, and when that happens, rather than God withdrawing from us out of love, I would say he goes with us out of love. And so that way I could tell them that when you're experiencing suffering and pain and abandonment from other people, the right. one person who is there with you, I will never leave you or forsake you, God says, mm -hmm. is God. I, I totally as, agree with as that. revealed in Jesus. And, and for your audience, that's maybe, and for me, for most audience, that, that, that's what needs to be, in fact, for everyone, that, that needs to be emphasized, that okay. God's with you. But from, from a, if we're talking theology, um, it's not, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but is it inconceivable that God is involved in your life trying to influence you not to do this, uh, but if your heart gets hard and you're, now he, he's, he, you're settled on this, that God has to say, okay, I, I, I'm not going to influence you not to anymore. I'm going to let you do that. Romans 1. You know, this is, uh, we're just theologizing Romans 1. God gave them over to reprobate mind. This, I can't say that God doesn't do that now. I have a different because... view of Romans 1 than that, but that's a whole different subject. Right. <laughs> Douglas Campbell. Douglas Deliverance Campbell. of God. Read that book. All right. There's another book for you to read. Yeah. That will, that, that will save me. All right. He's a student of NT. I always give people the student right to be NT wrong Wright. if they want student to be. Of, yes. I as, tried as to influence you, but now I let you go. He's <laughs> a student of NT, right? But no, hey, no. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. Yeah. I, I appreciate your pastoral's heart, and that's an yeah. uh, important word. Right, right, right. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, bro. Okay, so some people have heard that discussion. Some people were there at the conference. Other people subscribed to Greg Boyd's podcast. And they heard that interaction between Greg Boyd and myself. And so they have contacted me, written to me, emailed me. Uh, in my discipleship group, we've had a discussion about it as well. And uh, they want to know what I was talking about there at the very end of our discussion, where I mentioned this book, The Deliverance of God by Douglas Campbell. So that's what this podcast episode is about. I'm going to explain my understanding of what Paul is talking about there in Romans 1. Paul quoted, or I mean, Greg, Greg quoted um, Paul's statement in Romans 1.24 about God handing them over, delivering them up, okay? And uh, he thinks, and so I said, well, uh, I have a different view on that. I believe that something else is going on. And so in this podcast episode, I want to explain to you uh, what that something else is. And to do that, I want to begin with asking you a question. If you were writing a letter or a book or something and you had no quote marks, you could not use quote mark punctuation uh, to, to indicate that you were quoting somebody else, you know, what would you do? How would you indicate that you were quoting somebody? Uh, con consider, consider the following example, okay? Gary said, I love elephants. All right, so you might use the word said, right? So there's a guy named Gary, and he said, I love elephants. Now, notice, though, that without quote marks, if you think about this, Gary said, I love elephants, there would be a little lack of clarity in that sentence, right? Uh, you could understand that sentence to, to be Gary saying that he loves elephants, right? Gary said, quote, I love elephants, end quote, in which case Gary is making the claim that he loves elephants. However, without the quote marks... 
You could also read it to say, Gary said, I love elephants. In other words, Gary is saying that I, Jeremy, <laughs> loves elephants. Now, you wouldn't put the quote marks in there necessarily, uh, because that is not exactly what Gary would have said. Gary would have said, Jeremy loves elephants. Uh, but again, if, if there's no quote marks in what I wrote, Gary said, I love elephants, then you don't really know. There's some a ambiguity in, in what exactly it was that Gary said. All right? So you can sort of see how important quote marks are. It gets trickier than that, though. What if there's an ongoing dialogue, a back-and-forth exchange between two or more people? All right? And I have to record in my letter or my book or whatever, my article, my blog post, what one person says. Now, imagine how difficult this gets without quote marks. All right? Uh, here's an example. Gary said, I love elephants. Tom said, I love them, too. But I said both of them are wrong. All right, so, so again, we, we have even more ambiguity on what exactly is being said by whom here. Gary said, I love elephants. All right, so is Gary saying that he loves element, elephants? Or is Gary saying that I, Jeremy, love elephants? Okay, without the quote marks, there's, there's some confusion there. And then we have Tom. He comes in, chimes in, and Tom says, I love them too. Well, again, is Tom saying that he loves elephants? Agreeing with Gary? Oh, you love elephants? I love them too, Tom says. Or is Tom agreeing with Gary, Gary's opinion, that Jeremy loves elephants? You know, Tom said, I love them too. <laughs> is, is Tom saying, yeah, Jeremy does love elephants? All right, and then at the third line of dialogue, but I said both of them are wrong. Well, in that case, am I saying, no, Gary and Tom, neither one of you loves elephants, or am I saying, no, Gary and Tom, I, Jeremy, don't love elephants. Anyway, I hope you sort of followed all that, but the point is, it's very difficult to write dialogue or to quote somebody if you don't have quote marks. All right? Now, with that in mind, let me give you one other quote. Uh, and I'm not going to use the word said. Uh, I'm not going to use uh, quote marks. You know, I'm not going to say quote, unquote. Uh, nevertheless, I can almost guarantee you will recognize that I am quoting somebody and you will recognize exactly what the quote is. Here it is. That's one small step for a man one giant leap for mankind. Now, do you know who said that? Do you know the context in which it was said? Of course you do. <laughs> I mean, at least I hope you do. <laughs> uh, I didn't use quote marks, uh, and I didn't have to use the word said, right? So-and-so said, that's one small step for a man, one giant... And by, by the way, you might say, no, no, Jeremy, you misquoted it. The word ah isn't in there. Uh, well, actually, the person who said it claims that he put the word ah in there. One small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Uh, it doesn't come across in the, in the transmission that well, the recording that well, because obviously they're recording that from the moon. It's coming a long distance, and it's a little uh, garbled and... and a lot of uh, background uh, fuzz and static and stuff. So, but anyway, he claims he said it. So, so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he did. Okay. Anyway, um, even though I didn't say Neil Armstrong said, "That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind." You probably recognized that this was what he said when he stepped out onto the surface of the moon back at the first moon lunar landing. 
okay? And uh, you might have recognized who said it, the context of what was said. And I didn't have to say, Neil Armstrong said, quote, okay? It's a, such a famous quote that you recognized it instantly, hopefully, and maybe you even had some questions about what exactly was said, uh, but nevertheless, you understand who said it and the context in which it was said, okay? Now, take all this that you've learned about quote marks and easily recognized quotations, and think back to the early church, the days of the early church, when Paul is writing letters to the various churches he had planted. Many times, Paul wrote those letters, Galatians, for example, 1 Corinthians, Romans, okay, to correct or refute some of the false ideas and teachings that were being spread around to the various churches. And guess what? There were no quote marks in Koine Greek. Uh, Koine Greek is the language Paul used to write those letters. Okay? No quote marks in that language. So what did Paul do? Well, uh, he used a style of writing. It was very, very, very common in that day uh, in, in, in Koine Greek. And not just Paul used it. In a little bit, we're going to look at some examples from Paul. We're also going to see an example from, from James. Uh, but you can find it in all sorts of secular letters, letters outside of the Bible as well, uh, examples of it everywhere. Um, anyway, today, modern scholars have called this form of writing, they've called it epistolary diatribe. Okay, that's a fancy way of saying, all right, there was a letter that was written. That's epistolary. Okay, epistle means letter. So there's a letter that was written. Uh, and it's a diatribe. So it's a dialogue in which the person writing the letter is trying to refute or disprove the ideas or teachings of somebody else. Okay? So that's what epistolary diatribe means. Okay? The person writing the letter, epistle, is dialoguing to refute, diatribe, somebody else. All right? It was very common in Paul's day, in the days of the early church, and uh, there are numerous examples of it all over the place in the New Testament as well. Now, uh, what are some of the signs? There's lots of signs, indicators that epistolary diatribe is going on. Okay, and, and, and they can't use quote marks. But still, they want to indicate to their readers, hey, I'm going to quote somebody and then I'm going to refute them. So how do they do that without quote marks? Well... There's a couple of things. First of all, uh, they can simply quote somebody, you know, a, a famous or well-recognized teaching, right? Like when I did with Neil Armstrong earlier. I made a quote, and I didn't have to say, here's what Neil Armstrong said. As soon as I made the quote, you recognized it. So when Paul is writing his letter or somebody else, we may not recognize the famous quote, okay? But they did because it was something that a teacher in their church or some traveling itinerant teacher like Paul although somebody else, had come in and taught them and they'd been discussing and maybe they even wrote a letter to Paul saying, hey, so-and-so came here and said this, what do you think? And then Paul, when he's writing his letter, he quotes what it was reported to him that this teacher said. Okay, so they are going to recognize this famous or important quote. Okay, and then Paul would turn around and refute it. So he doesn't have to say, so-and-so said this. He just has to quote them and the people reading the letter, hearing the letter read, would recognize it. Okay, so that's the first thing. He might quote a famous quote. Okay, uh, now, also, like we do today, uh, Paul, or whoever's writing the letter, might use the word say or said. Uh, for example, you have heard it said. Jesus does that. Paul does that. Okay. You have heard it said. 
uh, or uh, Paul's uh, one of Paul's ways of introducing a quote or an idea that he's going to refute is, but someone will say, and James does that in James 2 as well, but someone will say, all right? So again, we today we do that same thing. Uh, President Trump said, uh, Neil Armstrong said, okay? And, and then you quote what they said, and then you work to refute it. All right, and the refutation then of what is said typically begins, this is the third sign that this is going on, typically begins with an adversative conjunction. That's, in other words, a way of disagreeing, you know, something like, but, okay, that's uh, an adversative conjunction. Um, or, or, of course not, you know, meganoito, may it never be. <laughs> Paul, Paul talks about that, uses that a lot, okay? So you're going, to, you're going to quote them, and then you're going to indicate, now here's what I think, how wrong they are. And, and you know, but, yet, however, uh, may it never be, of course not, that sort of a thing, okay? An adversative uh, way of transitioning. All right, and then a fourth sign that this is occurring is a, a gentle sort of um, mocking or name-calling of the person being refuted. You know, who are you, oh man, to talk back to God, okay? Oh, foolish man, something like that, okay? So it's sort of a, a, a way of, of, of calling them out, naming them, and even mocking them a little bit with a, a sort of a gentle name-calling. Foolish man, who are you, oh man, sort of an idea, okay? So those four clear signs... Um, that uh, epistolary diatribe is taking place. Now, the thing is, is all four are not always present. Sometimes it's just one or two. Sometimes there's none. And uh, when there's none, well, let's go back. When there's four, it's very, very clear what is going on. And we're going to look at three examples of that in just a minute. Uh, but when there's only one or two, or when there's none of these signs, these indicators of epistolary diatribe, it can be very difficult for us modern readers to understand uh, that, that the epistolary diatribe is happening, okay? Uh, but, but I think once we sort of train our eyes and our minds to start looking for this, then we, we become trained, like the early uh, readers were, uh, to, to see that this is indeed happening. Let's give some, let me give you some clear examples of epistolary diatribe in Scripture. One example is Romans 9, 19-20. So this is in this section of Romans where Paul is writing about election. And uh, so in this passage, Paul introduces the person who is objecting to Paul's words. Paul has been talking about election, and then he introduces an objection. And Paul says, you will say to me then, all right? So someone will say, you will say to me then, all right? He's using this word said. That is a sign of epistolary diatribe. And then Paul quotes what this objector is saying. So he's going to introduce the quote, the objection. Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? All right, so there's another sign, second sign. He quotes somebody, what is being said. And you can even see, if you go and turn to this in any English translation, you're going to see that they helpfully added the quote marks around that statement. Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Okay, we have quote marks in English, so we add them where, where we think uh, someone is being quoted. Now, it doesn't always happen because sometimes the translators don't recognize that somebody's being quoted. But they do here, thankfully, and uh, that helps us understand. Anyway, so then Paul begins his response, his refutation in the typical way. He uses the adversative conjunction, and then he, little gentle name-calling of the person. Paul writes, but, right, there's the adversative in conjunction, but indeed... Oh, man. Okay, there's the gentle name calling. Who are you to reply against God? All right. 
So here we have all four signs. The word said, you will say to me. The quote, you know, why does he still find fault? Who's his will? The adversative conjunction, but, and the name calling. Oh, man. So what we see from this is that Paul thinks that God has set up the world in a way that God's will can be resisted. Right? The objector disagrees. says nobody can resist God's will. <laughs> and Paul responds with a bit of irony. He tells the objector, by saying nobody can resist God's will, when God says people can resist his will, you are resisting God's will. <laughs> it's, it's a brilliant move by Paul. And if you want to read more about this, by the way, I write more about it in my book, The Rejustification of God, and it looks at this entire passage in more detail. Okay, uh, another text where we see this epistolary diatribe is 1 Corinthians 15, 35-36. And Paul's letter to the Corinthians, by the way, is full of epistolary diatribe, all right? He has heard some rumors, and someone came and reported to him about some of the things that are being taught, some of the things that are being done in Corinth. And then also they wrote some letters to him with some questions. And so he, uh, he, he responds to what he's heard, he responds to what is being taught, and he responds to the letter they wrote. And in, in his letter, 1 Corinthians, he quotes some of what he has heard and uh, some of what he is reading uh, in their letter. All right, and, and so um, he, he responds to these things. So in 1 Corinthians 15, we have one clear example of this. Okay, here he's talking about the resurrection. There are questions about the resurrection. And so he introduces the quote from uh, another teacher in Corinth by writing in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.35, but someone will say. All right, very clear sign that Paul is going to quote somebody. And then, of course, he quotes what they are saying. How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? All right, so the objection is, oh, Paul, you're talking about the resurrection. Explain it to us more, Paul. All right, how does it work, right? How, are the, how is it going to happen? And what's their body look like? How, um, you know, come on, Paul, explain it to us more. The objector is saying the resurrection is foolish unless we can understand how it works and what our new bodies will be like, <laughs> which is just sort of dumb. You don't have to understand it all to know that it does happen. All right, and so Paul, he sets out to refute this objection. And what does he do? Well, he uses a little gentle name-calling. He introduces his refutation with the words, foolish one. All right? Not horribly mean. He's just saying, ah, that's foolish. Oh, you foolish one. Okay? And then he goes on to explain more about the resurrection. And that's uh, for, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 36 and following. All right, now notice that the adversative conjunction was missing. So there we only have three of the signs of epistolary diatribe. The word said, say, the, the quote that they were asking about, and then the gentle name calling. The adversative conjunction's missing. But it's still fairly obvious that this dialogue between Paul and this other teacher is taking place in Paul's letter. Okay, one more clear example uh, of this happening is in the letter of James, uh, James 2, 18-20, for example. This obviously is not Paul. It's written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, he uses it as well, just to get outside of Paul and show another example elsewhere. And uh, help uh, seeing epistolary diatribe in James 2 really helps us understand this famous, famous passage about the relationship between faith and works in the life of the believer. All right? So here, uh, James, um, he, he has the signs, the, the clear signs. All right? First, he... Uh, introduces the objection by someone else in the normal way. 
he writes, but someone will say, right? And then he goes on to quote the ideas of this person who is objecting. Now, the question is, we, we, we clearly know that the quote starts right there in verse 14. You have faith, I have works, all right? The question is, where does the quote end? All right, you are a student now. You are aware of epistolary diatribe and some of the indications, the signals that writers in Koine Greek might use. So you've seen James introduce an objection. An objection. You know that this is going to be followed with a quote, and you see it. The quote begins. Where does the quote end? Well, since you know epistolary diatribe, you are looking for an adversative conjunction and then a little gentle name-calling, correct? And where is that found? Well, it's found down in verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man? Okay, there it is, the adversative conjunction. But do you want to know? The gentle name-calling, O foolish man. What does that mean? It means that all of verses 18 and 19 are a quote from the objector. Now, uh, you're going to have trouble. There's only uh, one or two Bible translations out there, which shows that the quote ends at verse 19. But even you go and compare, for example, the New King James Version puts the end quote halfway through verse 18. The New American Standard puts the end quote at the end of James 2.18. Okay, so you can even see there between the New King James and the New American Standard that there's a little disagreement among Bible translators on where the quote mark ends. But uh, following the rules, sort of the guidelines of epistolary diatribe, we see that the end quote should actually be at the end of verse 19, all right? And uh, therefore, James 2.20 begins James's refutation of this objection. And by the way, this helps you understand what James is talking about. This famous, famous sentence that people often quote, well, even the demons believe, right? That's not James saying that. That is someone who is objecting to what James is saying. And then James turns around to refute them. All right. So anyway, by the way, I wrote a lot more about this uh, at various places on my blog. I have a, a, an article called Even the Demons Believe. And you can find that on my blog post, uh, on my blog, redeeminggod.com. And then also I have a whole sermon I once preached on James 2, 14 to 26, where I go through this as well. And uh, you can find that. You could probably just go, go to Google, search for Even the Demons Believe, RedeemingGod.com. Just search that, and uh, Google will pull it up for you. Or you can search uh, James 2, 14 to 26, RedeemingGod.com, and uh, uh, Google will, will pull that up for you as well. Uh, so anyway, those are look three clear examples of epistolary diatribe in the New Testament. There's lots of other clear examples. I just wanted to point out these three and just show, sort of show you how they work. Now, let's look at a few less clear examples, all right? I think they are still clear, but they don't contain all of the signs, all of the indicators, all right? They might only have one or two, or in some places, none of the indicators. But again, once we recognize that uh, epistolary diatribe does occur in the New Testament, our antennas are up, right? Our, our eyes are starting to look for these, and um, using sort of understanding the thought flow of a letter and the theology of Paul or whatever, of what he writes elsewhere, whomever is writing, okay, we can sort of recognize that these things are taking place. Now, here's the thing. It might be difficult for us to recognize some of these, right? But remember, 
it's not difficult for the original audience. There's two reasons for this. One, they would have recognized the quotes, the clear quote marks taking place. Right, again, back to my Neil Armstrong thing, right? Uh, when I quote that, even if I don't say, Neil Armstrong said, quote, okay, uh, one small step for a man, okay? I don't need to say any of that. If I just say one small step for a man, one giant leap, okay, you know I'm quoting Neil Armstrong. Same way back then. If Paul is writing a letter, James is writing a letter, whatever, and he quotes somebody, if it's a famous quote, a quote they would have recognized from some teacher, some letter, something else that they were hearing, they would have recognized it, easily would have recognized, oh, this is that quote from so-and-so. Okay, so now Paul quotes them, and now he's going on to refute them. All right, they would have recognized it, even if we have a little more trouble doing that. We don't live back then, so it's a little harder for us to see it. The other thing you need to remember is that very often, uh, these letters were read out loud. Uh, we, we tend to read silently, and since most of us are literate, we read them to ourselves. Back then, literacy was not as common as it is today, and so very often, Paul would write a letter, and then he would um, send someone around to read the letter to the various churches. And very often, as these letters the people, you know, the church in the various town would, would gather together, and then they would sit and listen to have the letter read to them. And so very likely, in fact, we see records of this in various Greek literature, Roman literature from the time about these, uh, these, these people would go around and read these letters, carry the message of the emperor or the, you know, the, the various rulers to, to spread the message around, stand in this, the marketplaces and reading these things. Anyway, what they would do is they would change their voice or they would make a little hand gesture uh, to indicate when one person was talking or another, when there was dialogue. All right, so uh, that very likely happened with Paul's letters as well. This person reading it would, uh, when he knows that Paul is quoting somebody else, maybe he would change his voice, or maybe he would change the position he was standing in, you know, move from uh, one side of uh, the stage or whatever to another to indicate that somebody else is talking rather than Paul. And then when Paul is talking, they change his voice again. Uh, change a hand gesture, or move to another location, something like that, okay? It's just sort of a, a way of sta- being on a stage and, and performing. These letters were sort of performed in that sense, all right? And so, again, we don't pick that up when we're reading it because we're reading it to ourselves and we don't have a trained reader reading it to us. But that's the way it would have worked then. Uh, so so here, here's a little letter. Let, let me just uh, uh, act that I wrote this a letter to you, okay? And so just to give you a, sort of an example of how this might work. All right, so let, imagine that I wrote this letter and now I am reading it to you. It's a short paragraph. Sometimes I look at everything going on in the world and I am afraid for the future. We must remember, however, that We have nothing to fear but fear itself. And besides, God loves us, and perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. Nevertheless, although I know this to be true, I'm still afraid sometimes. So when I'm afraid, I remind myself of two things. First, I say, no fear. And then I also say, fear not. All right, so did you pick it up? There were four intentional quotes in that paragraph, which I just read to you, 
from other sources. And not once did I say, remember the quote from, okay, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, all right, or from 1 John 4.18, okay, uh, or the old marketing slogan, no fear, from the 80s and 90s. I don't know if you remember that. Or um, that final quote came from Isaiah 41.10, okay? But it was possible for you to pick up, I hope anyway, on all four of those quotes, because maybe you recognize the words, right? We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Maybe you recognize that famous quote. Or I changed my voice a little bit, so you heard it, all right? And so using those two techniques, using famous quotes and changing my voice. Now, if I was in front of you, I actually would have raised my hand, maybe even put quote marks up, or I would have changed position that I was standing, again, to indicate visually that I was quoting somebody else rather than my own words. I believe that that happened as these letters were read to the various churches as they circulated around, okay? So anyway, with all that in mind, let me give you a few more possible examples of where epistolary diatribe is taking place. Romans 1, 18-32. And uh, this is the text, the specific text that Greg Boyd, Boyd asked me about when we were on stage at the Renew Conference. Okay, this is the text he quoted and and uh, which I, right at the end of our conversation, I mentioned, well, Douglas Campbell has a, a good explanation of how that works. Okay, anyway, uh, Romans 1 um, is obviously Romans... Paul's letter to the Romans. There are very clear examples of epistolary diatribe elsewhere. I mentioned one or two earlier. Uh, Romans 1, 18 to 32, I believe, uh, is where Paul introduces the main ideas, the main teachings of a, of a, a religious legalistic teacher that Paul is going to refute in the rest of his letter. And it's a long explanation, Romans 1, 18 to 32, but it's a summary of what this other teacher is saying, right? And this is extremely significant because in Paul's letter to the Romans, he does talk about wrath occasionally, but here at the beginning, the wrath of God. This is the only time where the where uh, wrath is is clearly attributed to God, and um, also it is here where we read about God handing people over to their sin, right? So that people exchange natural relationships with unnatural and all that sort of thing. Okay. And guess what? All of these ideas, if epistolary diatribe is happening here, all of these ideas do not come from Paul, but rather from a legalistic teacher that Paul wants to refute. It's like that idea from James, uh, the faith of demons. Well, that's not James's idea. That's the other person saying something, and then James sets out to refute them. Same here. Paul is quoting this other legalistic religious teacher, and then he's going to turn around and refute it, okay? And indeed, we do see some clear signs that this is happening. For example, in Romans 2.1, we have this clear sign. We have the adversative conjunction, right? And then we have this gentle name-calling. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, okay? So there we see this clear sign. Paul's saying there, no quote marks in the original, okay? He's saying, okay, I'm done quoting that teacher, at least for now. He goes back to quoting a little later, like in Romans chapter 3, and and there's some dialogue back and forth between them, um, which again, they would have picked up at. Anyway, uh, Romans 2.1 indicates that Paul is now picking back up, okay? Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. He's going to take these arguments of this objector, turn them on their head upside down, and refute this this religious legalistic teacher 
uh, using his own arguments against him. It is a brilliant, brilliant move by Paul here in Romans 1 and 2. All right, by the way, I have some articles linked to you can you can uh, search search Google for epistolary diatribe redeeminggod.com and you will find some uh, links which I have you'll find my article on this which is based on this uh, podcast this podcast is based on my article and there's some links in there which show you how to read Romans 1 2 3 and 4 uh, in this uh, dialogue form okay uh, again and a lot of that's based on Douglas Campbell's book The Deliverance of God by the way it's a very expensive book it's like $55 on Amazon, uh, if you if you want to get it, uh, it's a b- bit of change, a bunch of money to, to 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 you know to buy the book. I get that. Um, and besides that, it, it's it's very very technical. So I don't recommend everybody reading it. But if you are if you like digging through the Greek and some of this background information and, and like wading through long technical scholarly arguments on some of this, that's a great book to start off with. And it, it presents all of the stuff in more detail, <laughs> exhaustive detail. The thing is 1,200 pages long in very fine print, very small print. So uh, it's a big book, but worth reading if you want to research more of this. And uh, he, he talks about all these passages as well. Uh, Romans 3 is another example. Okay, I'm not going to get into it, but uh, verses 1 through 9 show some of this, this back and forth dialogue, and then near the end of the chapter, 27 to 31, okay, again, more back and forth dialogue. It's sort of hard for you and I as we read that to piece together which parts are Paul, which parts are these other teachers, but again, I think the person reading this letter to the church in Rome would have changed their voices, changed their position, used some hand gestures, and so on to indicate when the false teacher, or when this religious legalistic teacher, not a false teacher exactly, but this legalistic teacher was talking, and when Paul was refuting him. All right, and besides that, the people in Rome would have recognized the words and ideas of this legalistic teacher. Uh, So anyway, uh, that's just another example in Romans. Uh, Let me give you two more examples this time out of 1 Corinthians. We have 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 14. This is a good example of epistolary diatribe, at least a possible good possible example. Again, remember, uh, with every new topic Paul addresses in his letter to this first letter to the Corinthians, he first quotes what was being taught, you know, or what they wrote to him, um, not what he was being taught, what was reported to him that they were being taught or uh, what they wrote to him in this letter, which he's quoting from. Okay, so he, he quotes, he, he offers a quote, and then he refutes what they are doing or teaching, okay? And so I think in 1 Corinthians 6, 12-14, we sort of have this back and forth uh, between what they're teaching and what Paul says, what they're teaching, what Paul says, what they're teaching, what Paul says, and it goes quickly, back and forth, back and forth, and I think that uh, the voice changes, the hand gestures, the movement in how the person is reading the text would, would indicate that. So I'm going to try to present this to you through audio. Again, it would be helpful if you could actually see me as well as I would change my hands, change my position. But, but here's how it would be. First uh, uh, Corinthians 6, 12 through 14. All right, and it begins with uh, what they're teaching in Corinth. All things are lawful for me. And then Paul would say, but all things are not helpful. Okay, back to Corinth. All things are lawful for me. Okay, see how it's repeated twice? This is what they were teaching. All things are lawful. All right, and Paul is objecting. Okay, not all things are helpful. And now then after the second time, all things are lawful for me, Paul says, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. <laughs> food for the stomach and stomach for food. Okay, that's apparently what the Corinthians were teaching. 
Okay, why would God give us a stomach? Why would God give us food if he didn't want us to eat everything? <laughs> okay, they were struggling with some gluttony issues there. All right, and Paul says, but God will destroy both it and them. Okay, both the stomach and food. God's going to destroy it. Okay, and then Paul goes on. He, he takes from this. Now, the Corinthians were extrapolating from this, the stomach and food. They were, they were basing some arguments off of that to also sexual issues, sexual organs. Why would God give us these organs if he didn't want us to use them? Okay, <laughs> similar argument that some people make today. And so Paul also, he makes this leap from the food and stomach to sexual immorality. He says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He's giving a little foreshadowing of the discussion on resurrection that he's going to have in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, it's just an example there. You have this quick back and forth dialogue where Paul quotes what they're teaching in Corinth multiple times, three times there, and then offers three refutations, quick refutations. Back and forth, back and forth in dialogue, epistolary diatribe. Okay? Another good example of this is in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2, just a couple verses later. Um, Paul begins the discussion this. Now, concerning the things of which he wrote to me. Okay? And now he quotes what they wrote. Here's apparently what they wrote to Paul in the Corinthian letter. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. All right. Now, do you know how many people have said that's Paul's quote? Oh, look at Paul. <laughs> he says it's good for men not to touch a woman. Well, that's not Paul's idea. He's not, he's not saying that. He's not teaching that. He's quoting something that the Corinthians were teaching, some of the Corinthians. And then Paul sets out to refute this. In 1 Corinthians 7, 2. You know, he cautions against this. He says, nevertheless, because of sexual immoralities, there's nevertheless, there's that adversative conjunction, which indicates, okay, that Paul's going to refute them. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Right? That's Paul's advice. <laughs> okay? And with good, sound, wise advice from Paul. It's, it's not Paul who's saying that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's the Corinthians who were saying that, and Paul is cautioning them against such practices. And he goes on in the rest of chapter 7, following verses of chapter 7, to explain why he believes that. Okay, So look, I could go on and on and on about this. I just gave you a few examples in this podcast to, to explain epistolary diatribe to you. And again, if you want to read more, I do have some links in the article that I, I pulled this podcast from. Just search for Epistolary Diatribes in the Letter of Paul, and uh, that will get you to my article where I have some links. And also, if you really want to dive deep, get that book, The Deliverance of God, by Douglas Campbell. Okay, so anyway, all of this, I hope, helps you in your reading and study of Scripture. It also is sort of a long explanation for what I did not get to explain when I was on stage at the Renew Conference with Greg Boyd back in September of 2017. Um, but I, I, I think that it makes a whole lot of sense. We do see clear examples of this all over the place in Scripture, and therefore I think it helps in other passages, such as the one Greg Boyd quoted. And uh, I believe something else is going on there, which is this epistolary diatribe. Paul is quoting someone who disagrees with Paul. Those are not Paul's ideas. And this is important because Paul believes, as I believe, that Jesus fully reveals God to us. God does not 
hand you over to Satan. Okay? He does not deliver you up to your sin. Instead, as we see in Jesus, he goes with us into the mess of sin. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what the crucifixion is all about. What we see in Jesus Christ from first to last is that God always forgives, only loves, and will never, ever leave us or forsake us. He promised, and I believe it, that he will be with us even until the end of the age. That's why this is so important and why we need to understand passages like Romans 1 and what what is actually going on there. Okay? Never ever feel that you've been abandoned, forsaken, rejected by God, that he has handed you over, turned you over to somebody else, to the delivered, I mean to the destroyer, okay, because of some sin in your life. God doesn't do that. Like Jesus, he's with us forever, walking by our side, protecting us, watching over us. I hope that makes a whole lot of sense. I hope you've been encouraged and have also benefited from this in your own Bible study and research. And hey, listen, if you would like to support this podcast and what I'm doing here, trying to spread this sort of teaching around the world, remember, I have this new way. You can text in a donation. Just text it to PayPal, P-A-Y-P-A-L, 729-725, right? Just text two things. One, the amount you want to donate, 5, 10, 50, 100 bucks even. (laughs) Um, And then also where the donation should go to, which is to my email address associated with PayPal, And that is donate at redeeminggod.com. All right. Thank you so much if you choose to support me in that way. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time as we look at another difficult text from the Bible and how to understand it in light of Jesus Christ and him crucified.